It is the best-selling book in history. No volume ever written has been more loved and quoted. And its words, sometimes simple and sometimes mysterious, should always be studied carefully. It is the Bible, the Word of God. Welcome to Bible Answers Live, providing accurate and practical answers to all your Bible questions. This broadcast is a previously recorded episode. To receive any of the Bible resources mentioned in this broadcast, call 800-835-6747. Once again, that's 800-835-6747. Now, here's your host from Amazing Facts International, Pastor Doug Batchelor. Hi friends, would you like to hear an amazing fact? In 2015, David Hole was prospecting for gold in Maryborough Regional Park near Melbourne, Australia. As he swept over the ground with his metal detector, it suddenly began to scream. There, within some yellow clay, he discovered a very heavy reddish-brown rock. Convinced the rock must contain a large vein of gold, he took it home and tried everything he could to open the rock. After all, Maryborough is the region of Australia where someone once found the largest gold nugget. It was called the Welcome Stranger. That was a 173-pound gold nugget back in 1869. So David was very optimistic. To break the red rock, he tried a rock saw. That didn't work. He tried an angle grinder. That did nothing. He tried a sharp drill. Nothing. Even dousing the thing in acid. However, not even a sledgehammer could make the slightest crack. Finally, the rock sat around, but in 2021, David brought his mystery rock to the Melbourne Museum, where geologist Henry Dermott told him the 37-pound rock contained no gold. That's because it was actually a very rare and very hard iron-nickel alloy meteorite, only the second one that he had seen come to the museum in 37 years, in many ways making this more valuable than gold. They were finally able to cut a sample of the stone with a diamond saw and confirm that it was a rock that came from space. You know, Pastor Ross uh, tells us in the Bible that sometimes there are rocks that come from space. That's right, Pastor Doug. And of course, we're talking about meteor and there's some wonderful stories, fascinating stories about meteors that have struck the earth. And I remember reading one, I think it was an amazing fact you did, Pastor Doug, about a meteor, a a lot smaller than this one that that came through a guy's roof and um, landed on his couch right next to him. I forget the details, but it was quite an incredible story. But here you have a rock that came from space, and uh, they didn't quite understand its value or didn't know where it came from. And for a while, it was sort of set aside until it was taken to the museum and they were able to do further explorations. Well, of course, that reminds us of what the Bible says about a rock that was set aside And it was a stumbling rock, the Bible refers to, but it was a rock of immense value. That's right. You can read in uh, Psalm 118, verse 22. It tells us the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And matter of fact, it's referred to about seven or eight times in the Bible. That one verse in Psalm uh, 118, Jesus says in Matthew 21, he said to them, have you not read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Now, Jesus, when he quotes this, it's referring to a story in the Bible when Solomon was building the temple, and uh, all the stones were cut at a quarry separately, and they were, you know, precisely measured, and then they were brought to the building site. That was a different location. 
And the cornerstone, because part of it sat on the bedrock and it was exposed to a downhill slope, it was an odd shape. It was square on some edges, but it was matching up the rock bed on the other edge. And they set it right in the middle of the building site, hoping that uh, they'd recognize this was a, the whole building was going to be set by this. If you do mason work, you know that your first stone and your first row of bricks, it has to be straight or everything else is crooked. Well, they kept stumbling over it and tripping over it, and they finally rolled it down the hill into the Kidron Valley. And then when they kept trying to find the right stone to fit the corner, they realized they had taken the stone that had been sent from the quarry and rolled it down the hill. And they brought it back up, and it fit perfectly. And this became an allegory of what the Jewish nation did when their Messiah came. They, they didn't realize the stone that had been prepared to save the world, that they had tripped over it. They stumbled over it. And um, that stone is Christ. The Bible tells us that uh, we are to build on the cornerstone of Jesus and his teachings. Christ said, these words of mine, they are the rock upon which we build. The wise man builds on that rock. And even in the book of Daniel, Christ is compared to a stone because it's that stone that comes from the heaven, like a meteorite, mm -hmm. that pulverizes all the pagan religions of the world and it grows into a great mountain. Several prophecies that talk about these Bible meteors or stones. That's right. Matter of fact, there's a prophecy in Revelation, Pastor Doug, that talks about the falling of the stars. It's one of the signs also of the coming of Christ. But the rock that you read about in the Bible, I was just thinking as you're talking about the rock representing Jesus, we also find Paul referring to the rock from which water came during the wilderness wandering of Israel as being a type of Christ. That's right, another So example. Christ is the rock that brings forth living water. Well, friends, we have a free offer we want to make available to anyone who is watching. It's, it's an offer that we don't often give because it's, it's actually a, one of our best-selling magazines, and it's about Daniel and Revelation. Both of these prophetic books are looked at in this free offer. We'll be happy to send this to anyone who calls and asks in North America. The number for that is simply 800-835-6747, and you can ask for offer number 604. Again, it's the Daniel and Revelation magazine. That's 800-835-6747. And as for free offer 604, we'll be happy to send it to anyone here in North America. Pastor Doug, talking about North America, we have people who are listening to us, not only in North America, but through the Internet uh, around the world. Sometimes we get people who call as far away as Australia and Africa. And so, friends, if uh, you didn't know, not only can you hear us on, on the radio, but you can also watch what's happening here in the studio on uh, Facebook, Doug Batchelor Facebook page, Amazing Facts Facebook page, and we're also on YouTube as well as Amazing Facts TV. So this is a good time if you'd like to participate and see what's happening here in the studio. Mm -hmm. You can uh, go to one of those links. And if you have a Bible question, our phone line here to the, sto to the uh, studio is 800-463-7297. That's 800-463-7297. And before we go to the phone lines, let's start with prayer. Mm -hmm. Dear Father, once again, we are grateful that we have this time here at the beginning of a new week to open up your word and, and study together. And Father, we ask for your Spirit's guidance to uh, lead us into a clear understanding of the Bible and also be with those who are listening wherever they might be. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we're ready to go to the phone lines, and we have our first caller this evening is Glenn listening from Ohio. Glenn, you're on Bible Answers Live. As we approach the end of this age, in the book of Revelation, the prophecies there begin assuring themselves and fulfilling. There's one set of sevens 
that I know nothing about, and I don't know if anybody knows anything about it. And I had a, a curiosity of where the people stand on the seven thunders of Revelation 10. Well, you know, it says right there, and you read about this in Revelation 10, verse 3 and verse 4, and he cried with a loud voice with, uh, as when a lion roars, and when he cried out, the seven thunders uttered their voices. Now when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. So this was something that, at least for John, he was told that it was to be sealed or not revealed. Now I think there's even in the um, book of Daniel, it talks about seal up the book until mm -hmm. the time of the end. But at the time of the end, it would be unsealed. Mm -hmm. So there's been a, a lot of uh, speculation about what these seven thunders were. Yeah, uh, you know, I, the Bible doesn't tell us for sure what they are. But what is interesting is that Daniel would receive this in vision only to uh, have a message from heaven, the voice from heaven say, seal this up. And we assume that's the voice of God saying, don't write this down. So why would God reveal something to the prophet and then say, oh, now don't write that down? Unless it there's something revealed that's not, perceived at first. And if you look at all of Revelation mm -hmm. chapter 7, it really describes an experience of the early Advent believers in the early 1800s that based on their study of the book of Daniel came to a conclusion that Jesus was coming at the end of the 2300 day prophecy around 1844. Uh, they did the math correctly, but they misunderstood the event. They thought the sanctuary being cleansed was the earth. And so there was a mystery there. There was something that was not fully understood. And some have seen in the seven thunders sort of a parallel of that experience where something's revealed, but it's not completely understood until the event passes. Yep. So maybe there'll be a clear understanding of this as certain events begin to take place as we near the end. Yeah, and Jesus said to the disciples, he said, there's many things I have to say to you now, but you're not able to bear them. Mm -hmm. So there was truth, and he said, it's too soon for me to tell you this. Right. And things were revealed as they were able to handle it. You know, you might enjoy our free offer tonight, uh, Glenn. It's on uh, the books of Daniel and Revelation, and it's uh, one of our magazines. If you'd like to receive that, just call 800-835-6747, and you can ask for the Daniel and Revelation magazine. We'll be happy to send it to you. We've got Anthony listening in New York. Anthony, you're on Bible Answers Live. Yes, good evening, pastors. Um, my uh, question, I have two Bible verses for, the, for my question. Mm -hmm. uh, the first one is Revelation 4, verse 8. Um, it says, and the four beasts had each of them uh, six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within. And this is the part I hone, I hone in on. And, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And then I look in Revelation chapter 8, verse 1, and at the opening of the seventh seal, it says, and when he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven, about the space of half an hour. Mm -hmm. So I was just wondering how that works together. Is there something that causes those angels to pause from saying holy, holy, holy day and night for that space of half an hour? And then even what is that half an hour in heavenly time? Yeah, well, there's an exception here, obviously. Uh, when there's silence in heaven, that would lead us to believe that heaven is vacated. Now, when will heaven be vacated? Well, it says when Christ comes, all the holy angels come with him. So if all of the angels have come with Christ and Christ is coming in the glory of the Father, then this reveals that time period. Now, in Bible prophecy, uh, a day is a year. And so some have wondered, well, if it's talking about silence in heaven for the space of about half an hour, 
Um, one hour is you know one twenty-fourth of a day, which would be fifteen days. About half of fifteen is seven. So it's telling us that there's like a seven-day period when the, the heavenly staff they come to uh, redeem. Your know, Jesus sends his angels to gather together his elect, and we're caught up to meet him in the air. And there's this procession. He may take us on a tour through the galaxies uh, on our way to heaven. We're we're not sure, but that's why I think there's silence in heaven. Mm -hmm. All the focus of the universe really at the time is what's happening with Christ coming at the second coming with all the angels. And, and so that's the emphasis. But I think for the most part, Pastor Doug, the reference in Revelation chapter 4 that talks about these, these four living creatures saying, holy, holy, holy. That is the case. As God does something or reveals his glory or um, acts in history, the response of the angels is holy, holy, holy in the presence of God. So, yes, that's forever and ever that's general terms but yeah. there's a little exception here and that's that silence in heaven about a half an hour yeah you also find in uh, isaiah chapter 6 those seraphim around the throne of god are saying holy 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 mm -hmm. so i think revelation is borrowing from or referring back to isaiah's experience hey thank you anthony good question all right we have harold listening in illinois harold welcome to the program all right thanks for taking my call yeah. So uh, what kind of led me to Christ to some extent was understanding John where he says, before Abraham was, I am. I'm trying to understand the interaction between Jesus and the Jews when he says, your father, when Jesus says to the Jews, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. This is in John 8:56. Mm -hmm. What is he referring to? He would see my day. Well, uh, God revealed many things to Abraham. Abraham was called a prophet. And um, I think that Abraham saw the day of Christ. In other words, the coming of Christ as our sacrifice most clearly when he had the experience of offering his son on the mountains of Moriah. And God said, you know, don't, don't bring the knife down. Don't sacrifice your son. This was a test. And it was also a living demonstration in that you are willing to offer your son uh, I'm going to be offering my son. See what Abraham said to Isaac when Isaac said, where's the lamb? He said, we got the wood, we got the fire, where's the lamb? And Abraham said, my son, God will provide himself a sacrifice. Abraham saw the Messiah's coming. I think it was revealed to him that God would send his son. So I think Jesus is referring to that. Abraham was looking forward to that promised son of which Isaac was a type that would save the world from sin. You know, we do have a book that talks about this great cost of the cross, and that's what it's called, the cost of the cross, that talks about Christ mm -hmm. and his sacrifice and how even in the Old Testament it was revealed in shadows and types through the sacri sacrifice and mm -hmm. through the sanctuary service. We'll be happy to make that available to anyone who calls and asks. The number is 800-835-6747. That is our free offer line. You can ask for the book. It's called The High Cost of the Cross. We'll be happy to send it to anyone who calls and asks. Well, thank you, Harold. We've got uh, Lindsay listening from also uh, Idaho. Lindsay, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you for taking my call. Mm -hmm. um, my question is, I am wondering, what does the Bible say about praying for others more so that are unbelievers? Well, there's no question the Bible tells us to pray and intercede for others. And the ones who would need it most would be the ones who they're weak in faith or they don't have faith. Uh, Moses went up the mountain to intercede for God's people even after they had, you know, gone into paganism and worshipped a golden calf. 
So, you know, they would qualify as people in a lost condition there. It says that they uh, they had a party and uh, they were unclothed. So it turned into kind of a, a debauched orgy or something after uh, the Golden Calf experience. So Moses went up and he interceded for him, And God heard his prayer and he gave the people another chance and showed them mercy. You see, many times when Moses interceded for the people, Abraham interceded for Lot. And for the, he actually uh, interceded for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah as well in praying for Lot. And uh, one time God heard Abraham and Lot was, and Sodom and Gomorrah were spared when he rescued them from the uh, Assyrians that had invaded from the north. And um, then you go through the New Testament and, uh, you know, Bible talks about uh, many examples of prayer and intercession. You know, it's almost like in one sense, um, the Bible reveals to us a great controversy between the forces of good and the forces of evil. Mm -hmm. And it seems that intercessory prayer allows God to do more to try and influence a person than he would do if we didn't pray. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I kind of imagine that if God's, of course, God wants to save as many people as he, he possibly can. But there's certain rules, you might say, in this great controversy. There are things that God won't allow the devil to do. And God, being a God of justice, restricts his influence to some degree. But when somebody intercedes on behalf of somebody else, it almost gives God the right to say, let me do more because this person is praying specifically for that individual. That doesn't mean that they don't have free will. Of course, people can still choose. But that's why we find intercessory prayer so prominent in the Bible. Jesus prayed for his disciples. Disciples prayed for others. Uh, Christians throughout Christian history have prayed and interceded for others. So there's great value in intercessory prayer. How many parents have prayed for their children? And I know, Pastor Doug, we've seen examples of a, a godly mother who has prayed for a wayward son and she might even uh, pass away and after her death her son comes to accept Christ. Mm -hmm. She doesn't see the fruit of her prayers at least in this life but there's power in intercessory prayer. Absolutely. We have a book it's called Teach Us to Pray and we'll be happy to send this to anyone who asks. The number is 800-835-6747 and again you can ask for the book it's called Teach Us to Pray. Danny's listening in Arizona. Danny, welcome to the program. So my question comes from Matthew 14, uh, 29, when Jesus walks on water. Um, so Peter comes off, and he also walks on water. Jesus tells him to come, and so he's actually walking. So I'm, I imagine that his faith is actually allowing him to do that. But um, when he starts to sink, was it his lack of faith, and uh, or was it also his focus that— um, drove him down to the to the to the water you know i think that you're on target with both i think that he changed his focus it says that he was looking at christ and walking on the water but then he saw the wind and the waves were boisterous in other words he took his eyes off of christ when his focus changed his faith changed which is just a very very important point for every believer that if we take our eyes off the solution and focus on the problem we can become discouraged the reason that David was able to defeat Goliath is, you know, he said, you come, you've got a sword and a spear and a shield. He had his helmet and his armor. David said, but I'm coming against you in the name of the Lord. David's focus was on the answer, which is the Lord, not on the problem, which was the giant. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's key to the Christian life. Don't take your eyes off the answer and just focus on the problem or you'll start thinking. It's like those 10 spies that went to look at the promised land and all they saw was the problems but Joshua and Caleb, they saw the solution and they made it to the promised land because they had faith and they had the right focus. 
and the focus. Okay, all right. Yeah, that, that was my my question. I was like, is is faith really that fragile? Can can it be that fragile in a person? Yeah, I think I think it's um, your faith is directly impacted by um, where you direct your attention to the strength of the Lord and trusting the Lord. Or you start looking at your weakness and your problems, and it's it can happen that quickly. I believe it. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you, Danny, for your call. We got uh, Joey listening in Michigan. Joey, welcome to the program. I have a question. We were um, reading Kings, and in Second Kings, they talk about Jeroboam a lot about being evil. I just wonder why they always go back to him. And is there more than one Jeroboam? Uh, yes, yes, uh, there is more than one Jeroboam, oh. um, and, and I think there's another king that named his son Jeroboam, um, but. Uh, the Jeroboam that is the most infamous when the kingdom of Israel broke away from the kingdom of Judah, the 10 tribes in the north broke away. They picked a new king instead of the sons of David. They said, we're going to pick our own king. And Jeroboam is the one who instigated that, that rebellion. And, you know, all would have been well, except he said, you know, I'm afraid now that the people in my kingdom are going to go to the temple in Judah, which was, uh, Rehoboam's kingdom, the son of Solomon. And he said, I'm afraid they're going to start going down there and their hearts are going to be drawn back to Judah and they'll lose their loyalty. So to prevent them from needing to go to Jerusalem for the feasts, he said, we're going to set up altars in Bethel and Dan. And he made golden calves, which God had clearly told them not to do. They'd already gotten in trouble doing that once before. And he began to make people priests that were not of the Levites or the sons of Aaron. And the Bible was very clear that only the Levites and the sons of Aaron were to serve in the temple and as priests. And he basically led the kingdom, those 10 tribes, into idolatry, which is breaking one of the commandments. So from then on, the Bible talks about Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who did make Israel to sin. He led the whole nation away and it lasted, I guess, all the way through the time of Ahab until they fell. So there was, I believe, another uh, king who named his son Jeroboam. Uh, and there may even be just you know, someone in the chronologies named Jeroboam that isn't related. It wasn't that uncommon of a name. But um, yeah, that one infamous king, he was a servant so of he Solomon, kind of started broke a away. Cascade of idolatry. Exactly, maybe. yeah. He set the stage and it just lasted for generations. Okay. So if you look up the phrase Jeroboam who caused Israel to sin, I think that's about 15 times in the Old Testament. Okay. Very good. Well, thank you so much. All right. Thank you. All right, Appreciate bye. your question, Joey. All right. We've got Smyrna listening from California. Smyrna, welcome to the program. Hi. Good evening, Pastor Ross, Pastor Doug Bachelor. It was, it's beautiful to talk to you this evening. And I have a very special question who came out actually from my 13-year-old. Um, he had asked me, what happened to Lazarus after he was resurrected, since we know that he was the best friend of Jesus. Um, so the question is, what happened to him after he was resurrected? Did he go to heaven after Jesus died? And um, he got resurrected, and then, you know, he was a couple days in earth um, with his disciples, but then, he, you know, he, he, he went to heaven. We know that. So his question is if Lazarus went with him to heaven. All right, good question. Now, there are several people that Jesus and the apostles and a couple of Old Testament prophets resurrected. Elijah, 
and Elisha, both resurrected boys that were dead in the Old Testament, they grew up and they lived normal lives and then they died again. But they were saved from a premature death. In the New Testament, Jesus resurrected, oh, is it three people? He resurrected the widow's son of Nain. He resurrected the daughter Jairus and he resurrected Lazarus and then he resurrected himself. He said, I lay my da life down, I take it up again. Um, but the three people that he resurrected, they lived normal lives and then they died again, either from sickness or accident or, or uh, sabotage. You know, the, the Bible tells us that the uh, religious leaders were so uncomfortable that Lazarus was a living testimony of Jesus' power. They even wanted to kill him. But there's no record that they did kill him. They were just threatened by him. But as far as we know, Lazarus did not go to heaven and you might be thinking of the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And Lazarus was a very common name, like, you know, the name John, present company included, uh, you know, or Tom or Bob. They're just very common name. And so there's the, it's not unusual that Jesus used the word Lazarus in his parable. Now, there is a group that was resurrected at the time of Christ's resurrection. If you but read Lazarus about wasn't dead then. No, he wasn't. So, so he, you don't he, think he's he, part of the group. Right, no. right. No, not at all. But it does talk about this group that were resurrected at the time of Christ's resurrection. And it seems as though they were taken to heaven yes. at the ascension of Christ. But as Pastor Doug points out, Lazarus was alive and well at that time. And uh, probably was still involved in helping to provide for his sisters at mm -hmm. home. So... We have no record of him going to heaven. Although, you know, most likely he's waiting for the resurrection, just like the other saints, the other believers are waiting for the second coming of Christ and the resurrection. Yeah. Now we have a study that talks about the resurrection, death and uh, the resurrection, and we'd be happy to send a free copy of that to yeah, uh, absolutely. our sister. It is talking about the second coming of Christ and what happens when Jesus comes. It's called Rescue from Above and uh, tells you all about the second coming. We'll be happy to send that to anyone who asks for it. It's just 800-835-6747. And you can ask for the study guide, Rescue from Above, and we'll be happy to send it right out. All right, we got 47 seconds until our break. I don't think that'd be fair to take a question right now, Pastor Ross. And let's just remind people that if you are not acquainted with Amazing Facts, if you simply go to that website, amazingfacts.com or .org, you're going to find out that there is a tree of life and it's got all these different branches. We've got media, we have radio programs. You can listen to archives of Bible Answers Live. You can go to the Amazing Facts YouTube channel and there are probably hundreds of videos on bi different Bible studies at the YouTube channel. So we invite you to start exploring all of the Amazing Fact resources, both video, audio, and written. Many are free. And there's also some premium things that you can buy. We'll be back in just a moment to take more Bible questions. Stay tuned. Bible Answers Live will return shortly. Written by the hand of God and spoken with His voice. Some words will never fade. Get Pastor Doug Batchelor's 12-part sermon series on the Ten Commandments by calling 800-538-7275 or visit afbookstore.com. In six days, God created the heavens and the earth. For thousands of years, man has worshipped God on the seventh day of the week. Now, each week, millions of people worship on the first day. What happened? Why did God create a day of rest? 
Does it really matter what day we worship? Who is behind this great shift? Discover the truth behind God's law and how it was changed. Visit SabbathTruth.com. Terror attacks, natural disasters, political instability, and global economic meltdown. These are the images people generally associate with the tribulation and the day of the Lord. But did you know the Bible speaks about another day of the Lord just before the great judgment day? Amazingly, imprinted on the very fabric of time itself is a 24-hour period called the Sabbath that was meant to forever be a time of restoration for every human being, a day the entire world is largely forgotten. You'll be surprised to learn how this special day of the Lord factors into last day prophecies such as the mark of the beast, the seal of God, and the great final tribulation. It's all contained in this new eye-opening DVD series called The Last Day of Prophecy. To order, call 800-538-7275 or visit afbookstore.com. You're listening to Bible Answers Live, where every question answered provides a clearer picture of God and His plan to save you. So what are you waiting for? Get practical answers about the good book for a better life today. This broadcast is a previously recorded episode. If you'd like answers to your Bible-related questions on the air, please call us next Sunday between 7 p.m. and 8 p.m. Pacific Time. To receive any of the Bible resources mentioned in this evening's program, call 800-835-6747. Once again, that's 800-835-6747. Now, let's rejoin our hosts for more Bible Answers Live. Welcome back, listening friends, to Bible Answers Live. And if you have a Bible question, that's why we're here. If you've joined us along the way, this is a live, international, interactive Bible study you can call in your questions by dialing 800-GOD-SAYS. That's 800-463-7297. That'll bring you into the studio. We're also streaming this program on Facebook, and you can watch it on the Amazing Facts Facebook page or the Doug Batchelor Facebook page and the Amazing Facts TV channel, which is on satellite around the country, as well as you can go to Roku and watch uh, Amazing Facts television or on the Internet aftv.org. My name is Doug Batchelor. My name is John Ross, and we've got a whole group of people who are waiting to give us their Bible questions. So we're going to go to Gabriella and um, from South Carolina. Gabriella, welcome to the program. So my question is, I know the Bible in 1 Timothy 2.9 says that women shouldn't adorn themselves with girl or gold or um, pearls. So what about, like, gemstones? Do those count as jewelry, too? Well, you know, the principle is, and I, I want to make clear, there's going to be plenty of people in heaven that wear jewelry, but when you study in the Bible, uh, the Bible seems to encourage that we avoid ornamentation on our bodies. Um, when the children of Israel made the golden calf, they made it from their earrings and their, their jewels, and then afterward, God said, break off your ornaments. So an ornament, it's not just going to be gold or pearls. It could be silver. It could be crystals. It could be, you know, anything. So the thing is, um, you know, it, it, as soon as you begin to open the door, um, and what I'm sharing here, some people are shocked in our culture because there's whole stores that are called Christian jewelry. 
But I think as soon as you open the door for Christians to start wearing all kinds of different baubles and beads, that people, some people are insecure about their appearance and they try to compensate by hanging more valuables on themselves and maybe increase their perceived self-worth. And, and, you know, some people maybe take it too far. Uh, and so I just think it's better for Christians not to wear jewelry. And um, I know that when the judgment comes and God is not going to stop me at the pearly gates and say, Doug, I can't let you in. Why not, Lord? You didn't wear enough jewelry. You know, so I just try not to create a stumbling block. The Bible speaks against uh, says Jacob and his family. They buried their jewelry when they went to meet with the Lord. And and uh, Isaiah chapter three talks about the proud daughters of Zion. And then it begins to enumerate their articles of jewelry that they, they wear. So and what I'm saying, like I said, this is not just me. This is what you used to hear from Pentecostals, Baptists, Methodists. They all used to talk about John Wesley wrote widely about it said, well, Christians need to be careful about their attire, not just golden jewelry, it's like modesty. Mm -hmm. And in our culture today, men and women uh, they often dress in a very provocative way, and the um, Bible's clear that we should be modest in our apparel. You know, we do have a book that deals with jewelry. It's called Jewelry, How Much is Too Much? This is a common question that we get past today, so we have some Bible resources on that. If you'd like to learn more about the subject, call 800-835-6747. You can ask for the book. It's called Jewelry, How Much is Too Much? You know, Pastor Doug, talking about jewelry, <laughs> we know of some fairly well-known uh, televangelists uh, who were on TV and one of the criticisms that came against these televangelists was just the amount of jewelry that they were, both them and their wives, but very expensive necklaces and bracelets and rings just about on every finger. It just doesn't set the right... Especially when they're begging for offers. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't set the right tone. You can't imagine Jesus And then you Jesus say, what would Jesus that? do? Exactly. Yeah. That's the thing, is what would Jesus do? Yeah, so... All right, well, thanks for your call. We've got uh, Nuke listening from Minnesota. Nuke, welcome to the program. All right, so I just had one question. So my question was really um, based off of a principle in the Bible in Isaiah chapter 28, verses 9 and 10, where the Bible says that the Lord declared the end from the beginning. and Or rather, where he said precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little and there a little. Mm -hmm. And then where he says in Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10, that he declared the end from the beginning. And so when I look at the beginning, you know, when I look at Genesis, I see that, you know, there's there's the beast, you know, which is the serpent. There's the woman. And then there's Adam, who was at the time he was the king of the earth before he sinned. And then we look in Revelation and we see the same thing. We see the beast. We see the harlot woman. And then we see the kings of the earth that committed fornication with the harlot woman. And so the reason that I emphasize this is because I wanted to see um, why is it that we believe that in Revelation, the harlot woman and the beast, they're the same entity, when in Genesis, which is the beginning, we don't see them to be the same entity. We see that the beast and the woman are two totally separate, um, two totally separate entities. Okay, uh, now I, I hope I understood your question, because you, you went you know, from Isaiah about um, God declaring the end from the beginning to Revelation and the beasts. Um, but let me focus on the last thing you said. Uh, how do we know that the beast and the woman are the same? In Revelation, you see a, an evolution of the beast. Uh, so the, the dragon that you see with seven heads and ten horns in Revelation chapter 12 
is that same Roman power, but it goes through a change by the time you get to Revelation 17, where you now see a woman riding on that beast. So there's a confederacy between this woman and the beast. And, um, you know, most uh, Protestant theologians believe that the woman in Revelation 17 was talking about how the church had commingled Christian teachings with Roman pagan teachings, and that's why it's pictured as a woman there. So you see there's sort of a consolidation of Rome, pagan Rome, with Christianity, which was supposed to be Christ's bride, but she's become unfaithful, and she's become a political power. She's now committing fornication with the kings of the earth. And uh, so, you know, you see, and then you've got the different beasts in Daniel and Revelation. So you've got a lot of beasts that are evolving through the Bible, culminating with the final persecuting power. Well, I think to be consistent with Bible symbolism, a beast represents a political power mm -hmm. and a woman represents a church. What's unique about Revelation chapter 17, you have a woman and a beast. Mm -hmm. So the power that's described in Revelation 7 or Revelation 17 is not only a religious power symbolized by the woman, but it is also a political power. And if you look at what this power represents, we understand that to be uh, the papal power, the Church of Rome, not only is it clearly a religious power, it's the largest church in the world, the largest Christian church, but it is also an independent nation. The smallest country in the world is the Vatican. 109-acre country. That's right. So it's a political power and a religious power. And they power. do have a wall around it. They do have a wall around <laughs> it. They do. <laughs> and they have ambassadors all over the place. Right. They have an ambassador to the United States and the UN. So y I don't think, uh, you know, we're not talking about the same necessarily. Uh, we're still faithful to the symbols. We're not talking about the same. It is the same power, but it's different aspects of the same power. It's mm -hmm. the religious power represented by the woman, the political power represented by the beast. So hopefully that uh, made some sense. Nook, did we answer your question? Yeah, I, I can see I can see what you guys are saying with the political power and the religious power. Looking at it from uh, Genesis is kind of what the, the point that I was making was that, you know, you had the beast who... You got the serpent the and the woman there in Genesis. Enticed, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so the serpent enticed the woman into taking of that fruit that would have been a representation of his power. And then she enticed the king of the earth to partake of it. And with oh, her enticing yeah. the king of the earth, with her enticing the king of the earth, what that did was that allowed the whole world to fall into corruption. This very same way we see in Revelation, the beast enticed the woman and the woman, she corrupts the earth with her false teachings and ideologies. Yep. You know, so that was the really, that was the uh, parallel that I was trying to make to see if you guys could see that. Well, there's a, actually, you've got a good point there. And we have a book that talks about the beast, the dragon, and the woman that makes some of the same parallels. That yeah, absolutely. We'll send I, them a I free think copy. you'll really enjoy it. If you'd like to receive that book, just call 800-835-6747. You can ask for the book, The Dragon, the Beast, and the Woman. We'll be happy to send it to anyone who calls and asks. It's a fascinating study, Revelation 17. Thanks for your call, Nook. We've got uh, Janet listening in North Carolina. Janet, welcome to the program. Good evening, pastors, and uh, thank you and bless you both for your ministry and taking the time to do this. And I just have to say, Pastor Doug, I seven years ago I watched a little online thing you did about the Sabbath, and you changed and saved my life. So, Oh, praise the Lord. I, I can't thank you enough. Praise the Lord. Thank you so much for that, Janet. can't thank you enough for that. Well, that's why we do it. I've been doing your Bible reading plan, and we, we just finished up reading Daniel. And at the very end of Daniel 12, verses 11 to 13, it talks about two other time prophecies that 
I mean, I, I learned about all the other ones from all your present truth, the 1260 days, the 2300 days, the 70 weeks, but I never heard anyone talk about these two other time prophecies, and I was just wondering what they were about. You know, the, the, these, uh, you've got more time prophecies in Daniel chapter 12 than any other chapter in the Bible. It mentions a 1260-day period, a 1290-day period, and a 1335-day period. And, you know, rather than, you, you almost have to draw a chart for someone on the screen and explain uh, what this is talking about. But most of the prophecies in Daniel are talking about the persecution that God's people would go through during this time, this great persecution of the Dark Ages. Jesus refers to this great time of trouble. And it, it, the heart of it is this 1260-year period, which is what you'd call three and a half um, prophetic years, 1,260 days. That's three and a half Jewish years. They had 30 days in a month. The Revelation calls it 42 months. And it also talks about uh, the time periods that led into that with the 1335 and the 1290. You know, the best thing is if she got that uh, magazine on Daniel and Revelation, I think yeah. there's a chart in there that explains that. It is. It'll make it, it's hard it'll to make cover clear. that in three minutes or so. Yeah, if you're looking for just a starting point, just real quick for those dates, the 1290 begins in 508. And the point, the reason that's specifically mentioned is the conversion of Clovis, king of the Franks, and France became the greatest supporter of the papal Holy power. Holy Roman Empire. Right. Yeah. So that's why that date is specifically mentioned. 1290 will bring you up to 1798, when the papal power was broken, mm -hmm. and the Pope was taken a prisoner, and they confiscated the political states of the Vatican at the time. The 1335 brings you right up to 1843, which is a significant date as it relates to the yeah. 2300 days and Great 1844. Great Advent Awakening. That's right. Yeah. Again, that's all in the magazine. Daniel and Revelation will be happy to send that to anyone who calls and asks. The number for that is 800-835-6747 and ask for the Daniel and Revelation magazine. And as we said a little earlier, this is not something that we can offer every week, but we're doing it this week, so take advantage of it. Mm -hmm. You will be blessed. Next caller that we have is Elijah. Elijah listening from Washington. Elijah, welcome to the program. I got a couple quick questions here. Um, the first is about the Ark of the Covenant. We just did a... Um, um, uh, Bible Amazing Prophecies here a seminar with Mark Fox and Yakima here, but I, I, my question is um, is the we know the Ark of the Covenant is in heaven and the sanctuary is being cleansed And but I was wondering, I've heard somewhere where maybe uh, the Ark might be found like the actual Ark of the Covenant here on earth that might be discovered. Alright, now in Revelation and Pastor Ross I think it's in Revelation 16 where it says I saw heaven open in the Ark of the Covenant uh, Revelation that, 11. 11, sorry, okay. In Revelation 11, it does mention the ark being seen in heaven. I don't think that means that God caught the ark that had been captured, or that had been uh, hidden by Jeremiah the prophet. Um, I don't think that means that that was caught up to heaven. I think it also talks about the altar of incense mm -hmm. in heaven. The candlesticks. Talks, yeah, that's all there. So those are symbols of the sanctuary it's taking us through. I believe the real Ark of the Covenant is still on earth and it's probably hidden somewhere in the vicinity of Jerusalem because before Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple and Jeremiah the prophet clearly forewarned King Zedekiah, he said uh, the temple is going to be burned with fire and uh, they wanted to preserve their national treasure and Jeremiah with some of the priests very likely hid it in one of the many caves that honeycombed the city of Jerusalem. And... Um, 
before, so the Babylonians were not captured. It's never mentioned from that time onward. It's probably still hidden. Most of the people that probably knew the secret died except Jeremiah, and of course he's dead now too. Um, so will it be revealed again before the end of time? That'd be a wonderful archaeological, it'd be the greatest archaeological That's right. find. We thought uh, the discovery of King Tutankhamun's tomb was of significance. Could you just imagine the discovery of the oh, Ark my. of the Covenant? That would be spectacular. It'd be a lot easier to preach the Ten Commandments if that. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for your call, Elijah. Uh, next caller that we have is uh, Ajota, listening from Pittsburgh. Ajota, welcome to the program. Listen, my question is based. Uh, we're going to go back into Genesis, the sixth chapter. Now, back when I was in Oakwood College with uh, Elder Cleveland and Dr. Wright and these people that I knew so well, I we there was one uh, section of Genesis 6 I've always had a question about, and it deals with the idea of what went into the Ark of Noah. Now, we're told that uh, of the two unclean and seven pairs with seven with the clean, are, were supposed to go inside of the ark. And the Bible says there, it's, to me it's specific, it says, of what I made. Mm -hmm. And my point would almost be phrased like this. Why isn't there Jurassic Park in the ark? I believe that dinosaurs and all these types of creatures that were outside of the ark were not creatures that God made. And I'm curious if, if that uh, line of reasoning would sound like something that could be considered. I, I think that carbon dating might be inaccurate. I don't believe that there are uh, creatures that were here 30 million years before uh, God said, let there be light. So how do we uh, make the appearance of these things fit the narrative of what actually went in the ark okay well uh, first of all um the bible tells us that god told noah to you know uh create the the ark so that it could preserve all life and some people they they see the uh, giant dinosaur bones i lived across the street from literally across the street from the american museum of natural history as a kid in new york city and i would go look at the great uh, the bone assemblies of the Triceratops and the Tyrannosaurus rex and the Brontosaurus and these huge reptiles, thunder lizards, that's the dinosaur. And people say, how in the world are you going to fit two of those on the ark? Well, I, I, I know that there are reptiles that were preserved by God on the ark, and they believe that these were just big reptiles. So which ones may have been amalgamated by man that were not preserved and which ones were reptiles that God created that just were large? I mean, alligators, you know, they, they find uh, fossils of alligators that were 50 feet long. Well, maybe that's an exaggeration. A lot bigger. Mm -hmm. Right now they got them over 20 feet. Mm -hmm. They had some, yeah, they may be 50 feet long, huge alligator-like creatures. And so, but Noah didn't have to necessarily take the full-grown ones. He could have taken eggs for that matter. I mean, I don't know that he did that. But he, he could have taken very small ones. And... Um, I think the Moody Bible Research did a study and they said that, you know, the average animal in the world today is the size of a sheep or smaller. And God didn't need to take 20 different kinds of dog. He took two probably wolf-like dogs and all the other dog breeds have come from them. Just like all the different races of people in the world came from Adam and Eve. So um, 
I believe that, you know, there were reptiles on the ark. There were a lot of very big ones, a lot of big mammals, too, that lived before the flood. And it seems the whole environment and everything became dwarfed and stunted after the flood. Which ones may have been the amalgamation of man that didn't get on the ark? I, I don't know. It doesn't say in, in the Bible or anywhere else. Well, you know, we also do have, in I'm thinking of the book of Job, it talks about a, a, a behemoth, yeah, Leviathan that lives in the sea and then a behemoth. And it says God made them. So yeah. God made Leviathan, God made behemoth. And if you look at the description that we find there in the book of Job, it's not a description of any animal that we have now. It talks about its tail being as thick as a cedar and its legs being big and round. Crazy. So it can't be an elephant because an elephant has a tiny little tail. But it's a description of some kind of, it uh, could very well be some kind of a dinosaur that yeah. lived. It talks about how that it lived by the reeds and by the water. And it's a very interesting description. But as you mentioned, Pastor Doug, the environment changed. You have woolly mammoths that must have made it on the ark because they survived after the flood. Mm -hmm. They died out eventually. So we don't know which of those those giant animals actually uh, made it through the and flood. And then Nimrod in the Bible is called the mighty hunter, and, and he probably, they were yeah. hunting some of these big things down. You're not a mighty hunter for killing a mouse. Right. You're a mighty hunter because you're killing something big. Right. And they may have rendered some of these survivors extinct. So it'll be interesting to go back and see... Uh, how that played out. You know, we do have a book that talks about, you know, it was mentioned in the call, uh, carbon dating. Um, we have a book called How Science Flunked, no, How Evolution Flunked the Science right. Test. And it talks about some of these commonly uh, believed or accepted theories that if you look at it a little bit deeper, you realize eh, it's not built in a very solid foundation. The book is called How Evolution Flunked the Science Test. And we'll be happy to send that out to anyone who calls and asks. The number is 800-835-6747. And we'll get that in the mail and send it out to you. We've got Chase listening in uh, Illinois. Chase, welcome to the program. Yeah, I have a question. It's about Isaiah 65, verse 20, where it says, No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days, for the child shall die 100 years old, but the sinner being 100 years old shall be accursed. Um, I was wondering, because I remember you talked about this before in one of your sermons, how it's like the child it doesn't mean that the child like dies in heaven because there's no one dying in heaven, but it's saying that they'll mature after 100 years of age. And I was just wondering, like, is that concept also kind of illustrated in Genesis chapter five when it talks about the genealogy of Adam? Yeah, you'll notice that in the early genealogies that some of these people were not even getting married and having children until they were over 100. Now, that was amazing by the time of Abraham because, they, you know, then they had a more normal lifespan. But, um, People matured more slowly. They live longer. And uh, in heaven, kids will not grow into maturity in you know, 15 years. I think that they're gonna, parents are going to get to enjoy them being children a little longer if they're reunited in the resurrection and they're still children. Um, they'll get to grow up. The Bible talks about children in heaven that you know, a child will lead the wolf and the lion and the lamb. A child plays on the hole of a venomous serpent and it doesn't hurt. So, yeah, but they grow more slowly. So when it says a child will die 100 years old, die is an unfortunate translation. There's no children dying in heaven. It's talking about a child won't even cease to be a child. And the word die and cease can sometimes be interchanged there. Pastor Ross, we have three minutes. Can we do another question? Yes, we've got Wanda listening in British Columbia. Wanda, welcome to the program. So I have a question, and it's in Psalms 23, verse 4. And it says... Uh, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. So I was wondering the difference between the rod and the staff. 
the significance of them and why they would comfort me? All right. Well, that's a good question. Um, a shepherd would have a staff. Now, they could do one of two things. A shepherd might have two different sticks. One is like a club that was more of a weapon against jackals and things that might harm the sheep. Another one was a staff. Some of them used one uh, for both. Um, and the staff often had a crook on the end of it. And if you needed to grab a sheep, it's hard to run up and catch them. But it's, uh, if they had a crook where they would scoot it around their back leg and it would uh, capture their back leg and they'd pull it up towards them. And that would sometimes be a means of discipline. Uh, but it would also be used to uh, ward off anything that might harm them. And so we are comforted by God's uh, protection and by his discipline. And so David, as a shepherd, he employed these symbols he was very well acquainted with that, uh, you know, the shepherd's rod and his staff are both for the benefit of the sheep. Yeah, okay, well, that's that makes sense. So the rod is more the disciplining one or keeping in line. Well, I think the staff uh, is the one that they use for hooking the sheep and bringing it in, and the rod was the one that... Uh, they, they would use, use against the wolf or yeah. the bear that comes to take and the sheep. And you often hear about the rod of Aaron and Moses mm -hmm. that was lifted up and it was, you know, leading the sheep. Moses was a shepherd. And in Revelation, it talks about Jesus coming with the rod of iron to execute judgment upon That's the right. wicked. Well, he's coming as the good shepherd to protect his sheep. Because if you do in Revelation, there is a death decree that's passed just before Jesus comes. So Christ comes to the rescue of his people. And yeah, yeah it is a judgment that falls upon the wicked. So the rod protects us. The staff guides us. Yeah. And we can see both of those parallels or symbols being used in the Bible. Very good. Good question. Thank All right. You, well, I'm looking at the clock, Pastor Doug. We've got a minute before we're going to um, say goodbye to our friends who are listening on satellite radio. For the rest of you who are listening, we do have our bonus questions. And we like this part of the program. We try to answer as many Bible questions in about two minutes. And we get those questions sent to us. So if you have a question that you'd like to try and have us answer, you can just send your question to balquestions at amazingfacts.org. That's the website, balquestions at amazingfacts.org. And as I said, we take about two minutes, Pastor Doug, and try to answer as many questions as possible. We've got a whole bunch of questions, so we're, we're looking forward to that segment of the program. So for those of you who are listening on satellite radio, uh, we're going to have to say goodbye to you here in uh, just a few seconds. But please go ahead and take a look at the Amazing Facts website. We mentioned the address earlier, just amazingfacts.com or .org. You can find archived programs of Bible Answers Live, as well as a lot of additional and fantastic resources. So hopefully, God willing, we'll be able to visit again next week on another edition of Bible Answers Live. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's broadcast. We hope you understand your Bible even better than before. Bible Answers Live is produced by Amazing Facts International, a faith-based ministry located in Granite Bay, California. Well, Pastor Doug, we've got a number of questions that's come in, and we want to greet those who stayed by for this part of the program. So here we go. Question number one. Pastor Doug, do you have any idea how long Adam and Eve lived in the garden before they sinned? Well, we don't know the exact time, but chances are it was not very long because God told them, be fruitful and multiply. Presumably, the plumbing was working perfectly. <laughs> they had not had any children yet, so I'm guessing that they'd probably only been there a matter of months before okay. uh, they fell into sin. All right, next question that we have. Is there a difference, biblically speaking, between a messenger and a prophet? Um. 
Well, you know, someone could be, as you mentioned before, a career prophet where it's a calling upon their life. And then other times God might be giving a person a particular message for a specific time and person. And so in that sense, yes, there could be a difference. Okay. Question number three. What will happen to those who are living but they are not saved when Jesus comes the second time? It says the wicked, if they're unsaved, they're in the category of the lost. They are destroyed by the brightness of his coming. Revelation says they're calling for the rocks and the mountains to fall on them and hide them from the face of the one who sits on the throne. So for them, it's not a good day. Okay, next question that we have. Luke twenty-two forty-seven says, But they who did not know but committed things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. And the question is asked, is this justice? Yeah, you know, uh, every judge will mete out sentence based on knowledge. If a person committed a crime in ignorance, then it's very different than a person who read the law, they knew the law, they saw the sign. It's, you know, if you tell the, the officer, look, the speed limit changed and you didn't have it posted, I did not know, mm-hmm. he's going to show you more mercy than if you drove by six signs that said speed limit 55 and you're going 90. So he said, look, you knew, you saw it. So the Lord judges us based upon knowledge. Okay, last quick question. Pastor Doug, you've got the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and that is the Godhead or the Trinity, but are they all one being or one person? Three separate persons, and part of the reason we know this is you look at the baptism of Jesus and you see God the Father is in heaven. He is speaking. Jesus is not being a ventriloquist. He said, this is my beloved Son, and God the Spirit is coming down in the form of a dove, And of course, when Jesus prayed to the Father and the Father answers and says, you know, I will glorify you and I have glorified you, you've got individual persons. Hey, thank you, listening friends. It's been so much fun answering your Bible questions. God willing, we'll have another chance next week. Make sure and tune in and check out the Amazing Facts website. This broadcast is a previously recorded episode. If you'd like answers to your Bible-related questions on the air, Please call us next Sunday between 7 p.m. and 8 p.m. Pacific Time. To take advantage of the offers you've heard on this broadcast, call us at 800-835-6747 or visit our website at amazingfacts.org. Tune in next time for more Bible Answers Live. Honest and accurate answers to your Bible questions.